0: We're continuing with our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, and I guess if you wanted a title for this series, it would be the title, The Glory of God in the Face of Christ. The Book of Romans tells us that in creation, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature are clearly seen. We learn about God from mountains and sea and black holes and coral reefs and sunsets and woodpeckers and blue whales. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So ultimately, when we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. And when we truly capture something of his glory, uh, all of those other things in our lives that seem so important and try and take up our time and attention, grow strangely dim. So we come this morning to Matthew chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles with you, and we're going to have a look at verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So as we did last week, all that I want to do this morning is take some time to look at this picture of Jesus that Matthew gives us. Because once again, it is an extremely compelling picture. We're going to look at it from various angles, noticing different aspects, looking at some of the background. And as we go along, I'm going to make a couple of applications. The very first word that Matthew gives us is pretty important. It's the little word, Then, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. Remember what comes before this. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. As he comes up out of the water, heaven is opened, and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. In other words, Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4 go together. Jesus is baptized, then Jesus is tempted. There is baptism, then there is battle. There's the river of water, then there's the desert. There's the voice from heaven, and then there's the voice from hell. These two chapters together describe the normal Christian life, that our walk with God includes times of great joy and times of great sorrow. There's this constant ebb and flow. Some Christians believe that if you have a particular encounter with the Holy Spirit, then you sort of move to another plane where you're no longer troubled by trials or temptations. But that's not the case. In one of his sermons, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, imagine that you get to a place where you're so filled by the Spirit and you're so led by the Spirit that you're absolutely pleasing to God. You're so filled by the Spirit, you're so led of the Spirit that you're completely pleasing to God. How would your life go? Well, here was the one person who was utterly led by the Spirit, who was completely pleasing to God. And how did his life go? What were the results? Temptation, trial, being misunderstood, being falsely accused, being betrayed, beaten, punched, flogged, crucified, and killed. And that's important to remember because some of you right now are going through trials and temptations and difficulties and you're thinking to yourself, I'm feeling bad, I must be bad. It's the opposite of that song in the sound of music. I remember where Maria is asking, why is everything going so well? Why are all of these wonderful things happening to me? And then she says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. If things are going good, if then I must be good. And if things are going bad, then I must have done something bad. But look again at the only person who was truly good and see that his life went really bad. You can be fully devoted to God and have your life go very bad. In fact, the New Testament promises us that if we're truly devoted to God, our lives are likely to go very bad. And Tim Keller goes on to say, anyone who offers you a Christianity without tears is not giving you good money. It's counterfeit. Anybody who says that if you receive the baptism of the Spirit, if you receive the voice of assurance down on your heart, if you receive the sense that God is pleased with you, that that's the end of conflict, that that's the end of strife, that's the end of temptation, that person is not offering you the real thing. Christianity, true Christianity, is a fight. Does that mean that there are no experiences of the Holy Spirit? Not at all. But what are those experiences for? I was listening to an interview with Pete Scazzero, who comes from a vineyard background, so much more charismatic than I would be theologically. But the interviewer asked him, how do you tie together spiritual formation with breakthrough? Because both are important. And Pete said to him, Jason, I'm going to tell you something uh, to think about. You might not like it, but hopefully you'll think about it. There are those meetings where the Spirit of God falls, where there's prayer ministry, where there's an experience of the Holy Spirit and you get knocked down. And I've been knocked down good and solid. I've been in meetings where the glory of God was tangible. But all that that is giving you is power and energy by the Holy Spirit to die. There's no substitute to taking up your cross, being crucified, and following the person of Jesus to the cross and dying so you can be resurrected. There's no skipping over that. There are no shortcuts to spiritual formation. Experiences of the Holy Spirit give us the power that we need to do the daily hard work of taking up our cross and following Jesus. Jesus experiences the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his ministry so that he would have the strength to die to himself and live for his Father. And we'll look at that again in a moment. So, we've got through the first word of this passage. (laughs) The rest of the sentence is pretty important too. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That little sentence teaches us two important things. Firstly, that it is the devil who tempts, not God, not the Spirit. But secondly, that it is the Spirit who leads, who guides, who is in control, not the devil. In other words, the verse teaches us that God is not the author of sin and suffering and temptation and evil; the devil is. But God is so sovereignly in control of these things. He is so powerful that He is able to take sin and evil and use them for good. What is the good that's taking place in Jesus' life? Well, to really understand Matthew chapter 4, you've got to go back 1,400 years before Christ to the experience of Israel in the desert. You remember how after God has saved Israel out of Egypt, He leads them into the desert for 40 years. And it's not just wasted time. In Deuteronomy 6 uh, through Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Israelites are now at the edge of the promised land after those 40 years and Moses reviews their history and he says this. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments. He humbled you causing you to hunger And then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And significantly, all of the scriptures that Jesus quotes here in Matthew 4 come from Deuteronomy 6-8. to to What's going on? Well, Israel in the Old Testament is described as God's son. Remember God saying to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And after God rescues his son out of Egypt, he brings them into the desert to be tested. God wants to know what is in the heart of his people. But Israel fails the test. They get hungry and they complain. They get thirsty and they complain. They get tired and they complain. Psalm 78 reflects on this period in such a beautifully poetic way. The psalmist says they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the desert? When he struck the rock, water gushed out and streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us food? Can he supply meat for his people? How often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. But now here in Matthew chapter 4, we have Jesus, the true Son of God, going out into the desert, not for 40 years, but for 40 days before his ministry begins to be tested out in the desert. Let's look briefly at these three tests, these temptations that Jesus faced. The first is there for us in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's the temptation? Well, Satan is tempting Jesus to use his divine power by himself, on his own, to do what he wants rather than submit to the will of his Father. You see, as God, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus had all of the attributes of God. He was all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, omnipotent. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't empty himself of some of those divine attributes because then he would no longer be God. But what he did was not have divinity reduced but divinity restrained. Instead of using his divine power whenever he wanted and however he wanted, he always did so in obedience to his Father. And that's why at times we read about Jesus knowing what people are thinking, and yet on the other hand have Jesus say that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. It wasn't his Father's will for him to have that knowledge while on earth. That's why here, when the devil says, turn these stones into bread, Jesus refuses, because to do so would cheat. Uh, He wouldn't have experienced uh, hunger. But a little bit later in Matthew 11, when there is a hungry crowd in front of him, Jesus does miraculously feed them, because that's his Father's will for him at that point, to serve others and demonstrate that he is God, the same one who provided the Israelites with manna in the desert. So the temptation here is for Jesus to use his miraculous power for his own advantage and not submit himself to the will of his Father. But Jesus refuses. He says there's something more important to me than bread, and that is to submit to the will of my Father. You see that lived out practically in John chapter 4. Remember how Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he's so busy speaking with her and with the other Samaritans that come and hear him that he doesn't have time to eat, and his disciples come back and say to him, eat something. And he says to them, I've got food that you don't know anything about. And they discuss among themselves and say, well, could somebody have brought him lunch? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to finish his work. Second temptations there for us in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I find it fascinating that the devil quotes scripture here. Did you see? <laughs> Jesus has just said, it is written. And now the devil also says, it is written. And there's something important here. How, how does error enter into the Christian church? Does Satan stand outside of the church with a big black book and say, come over here and believe this volume of heresy? No, no church or denomination or organization has ever moved from orthodoxy to heresy overnight. And they haven't done so from without, but from within. It's always the slight deviation, the slow slide. All false teaching comes cloaked in orthodoxy. 95% Biblical teaching that is sound and solid concealing 5% of error. But that error tracked over time leads to a serious deviation from the truth and ultimately to a shipwrecked faith. Just because someone on television is quoting the Bible in their sermons or presentations doesn't mean that their teaching is Biblical. It has to line up with the rest of Scripture too. Which is what Jesus demonstrates in verse 7, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the context here is uh, Israel in the desert, Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites have no water and instead of quietly trusting God and waiting for him, they demand a miraculous sign, give us water now. Exodus 17, verse 7, they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, they were trying to force God's hand to get him to do what they wanted, when they wanted it. And the devil tries to get Jesus to do the same. He says, God has promised to protect those who trust in him. Surely that applies to you if you're the son of God. Prove it. To which Jesus replies, yes, but Scripture says not to put the Lord your God to the test. And as the true Son of God, I can live in a relationship of trust that doesn't need a test. Now one Bible commentator has pointed out that there's quite a thin line between the prayer of faith and putting God to the test. The Bible clearly tells us to ask God for things in faith and to ask God for big things and to trust him. But we don't have to test God's faithfulness to his word by manufacturing situations in which we try to force him to act in a certain way, to prove himself, or we won't believe. Like Jesus, we can live in a relationship of trust that needs no test. And then the third temptation is there in verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. The temptation here, it's to avoid the cross. Jesus has come to challenge Satan's dominion over all the kingdoms of the world, set up his own kingdom, and the battle will be fierce and costly. It will cost Jesus in blood and death. And so the devil suggests that Jesus avoid all of that, avoid the Father's hard way of the cross, bypass the suffering, and gain all of the kingdoms of the world by worshipping him, taking the easy way. It's sobering to remember that the devil's temptation would be echoed by the crowd as Jesus hung on that cross. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Jesus' rebuke of the devil, away from me, Satan, is later given to Simon Peter, who when Jesus speaks of his suffering and death says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And so Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan. Away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, even if serving him means suffering and death. And so it's glorious to remember that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus has been through betrayal and desertion and suffering and death, after he's walked that way of great suffering in obedience to his Father, Jesus stands on a higher mountain outside Jerusalem and declares to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's been given to me because I didn't take the easy way, but the way of suffering and obedience to my Father. And because of that, I've received all authority in heaven, something that Satan could never offer. All authority in heaven and on earth. Which brings us to the end of the passage. Matthew tells us, then the devil left him. Luke adds the ominous words, until an opportune time reminding us that Jesus continued to face temptation throughout his earthly life. And then interestingly, the very angelic help that Jesus had refused to demand from his father, uh, the angels that would have kept him from harm as he fell from the temple, those angels now come and attend him. Jesus' trust in his father to provide for him is shown to be well placed without Jesus having to demand it. But let's take one final step back and look at this picture again. As we've seen, uh, 1,400 years before Christ, God led the Israelites out into the desert to test them and to see what was in their hearts. Would they love him and trust him and obey him? And Israel failed. Now the true Son of God is led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert to be tested by the devil and Jesus wins. Where Israel had failed, Jesus, the true Israel, passes the test and demonstrates absolute trust and obedience and devotion. And there's something important here then as we close, that Jesus goes out to fight for us and is victorious. And that's quite important because when I hear sermons on this passage, I often hear things like three steps to overcoming temptation. And there certainly are lessons to be learned from this passage as we've seen. I've preached sermons like that before. But those kind of sermons place the emphasis on us, the three steps we have to take in order to overcome temptation so that Jesus becomes an example for me to follow rather than a substitute in my place. Imagine for a moment that I was in a rugby match. Let your imagination run riot. <laughs> and in this, in this rugby match, I tried to be like Sia Khaleesi. I used Sia Khaleesi as my example. One of two things would happen. Either I would play a little bit, bit like Sia, which would lead me to pride. Or more likely, I would not play like Sia at all, which would lead me to despair. But then the coach sees that I'm injured and struggling and exhausted, and he calls for a timeout, and he sends in a substitute, Sia Khaleesi himself, who takes my place and does for me what I could never do for myself. Here in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus isn't an example that I have to live up to. He is my substitute. He has gone out into the desert and faced testing and temptation and overcome. When he was tested, it was found that he perfectly submitted to the will of his Father, and that he perfectly loved his Father, and that he perfectly obeyed his Father. And when we trust in Jesus, Jesus' perfect record of love and obedience and devotion to his Father are attributed to us. That's what takes place on the cross, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. His perfect record is accredited to us. So that when we're tempted, we can say, this temptation now has no power over me. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Before I knew Jesus, I didn't have a choice. But I've died with Christ and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus, I'm being tempted to lust here, I'm tempted to anger, I'm tempted to greed. You faced the temptation of lust, of anger, of greed and won for me. Your perfect record in terms of lust, anger, greed is credited to my account. Won't you give me the confidence to realize who I am in Christ? And won't you give me the courage and the strength now to flee from sexual immorality, flee from anger, flee from greed, recognize that those things are not worthy of of someone who is your child, and help me to cling to you as the only one who knows me fully and loves me completely. I'll still need the same weapons that Jesus used in his fight against the devil. I'll need to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Perhaps there'll be some passage of Scripture that I need to memorize to to help me in a particular situation. But the other Word of God that I hold on to is the fact that I am God's beloved Son. With him, he is well pleased, not because of what I have done, but because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on my behalf. It's not all up to me to win this battle. Jesus has won the battle for me and he fights with me and he fights for me. So look again at the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.